0: Yeah, waves, Here is my request.
1: You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Howdy, hi, Victoria. Stand the man.
0: man. Hello.
1: Oh, don't get up. It's only
0: me. Welcome to a brand
1: new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420, 3XY. Hello, It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3EE, the breeze, 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station.
0: Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg
1: Evans at 1420,
0: 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 30 minutes or so where we talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And according to the Pocket Oxford Dictionary, a doyen is described as the most respected or prominent person in a particular field. Well, after chatting with 10 fabulous pilots over the past few months, I feel relatively safe in saying in this episode, we speak with the doyen.
1: Most frequently
0: frequently, frequency in the state. Dial nine three zero. The greater three UZ. Ladies and gentlemen, John Vertigan. The greater three UZ. John Vertigan, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. Thank you for uh, for your invitation. Now, John, before we start, I'm not sure whether you're aware of it or not, but if you Google John Verdigan, it actually drops the H in John and refers the reader to some other guy who is neither as experienced nor as debonair as your fine self. Are you aware of this?
1: (laughs) Don't sell him short. That's my son. That's my boy. Jonathan, for short. Uh, John, J-O-N. That's, that's the guy you've been finding in Google. You won't find much reference to me these days. I've been retired since '08. So how long is that? 12 years.
0: Yep, 12 years retired, but 53 years in the business. Now, there's no way, John, we can do justice to what has been an exceptionally diverse and successful broadcasting career. However, let's start with 3UL in Gippsland. How'd you get there? What did you do there? And more importantly, what did you learn there?
1: Well, I arrived there by train. That's what you did when you were a penniless junior announcer. You travelled everywhere by train or tram. and No cars inside in those days. Um, so I arrived uh, at 3UL in Warrigal and I was met at the railway station by uh, Vern Haycroft, the late Vern Haycroft, who was the uh, studio manager, come chief announcer of the time. And uh, Vern was a very popular personality, he did the breakfast show in those days And this is 1955, we're looking at So it's almost uh, in the uh, part of my life that I've uh, started to forget already Anyway, um, uh, what did I do there? Well, I was uh, a general rust about radio announcer I did all shifts at some stage or another and uh, i learned uh, practically everything there i i did everything i know uh, uh, apart from doing radio shifts you had to go out and about in the in the company car with a, a lady announcer and a, a technician to cover the local balls if you'll pardon the expression uh, there was the young farmers ball and the what so and so ball they were annual events where all these wonderful women dressed up and so did their bows and we had to cover it on the radio. And leading up to the ball would be a series of uh, short commercials uh, for the the sponsors who also got a mention on night. So uh, uh, that was one other thing. Um, We went on OBs everywhere, you know, local companies wanted an OB and, of course, our gear was pretty uh, ancient in those days compared to what you have today. But um, it was interesting. It was educational, and it was a lot of fun as well. And I I, uh, met a lot of interesting people.
0: Now, originally being from Tassie, it must have been exciting to land your first capital city job at 7HO, which I understand was your first introduction to Top 40 Radio. Uh,
1: Can we change that from Top 40 to Top 100? Because I had to do that every Sunday afternoon on 7HO in Hobart. Uh, the pretty little city with the mountain and the fountain, and I was known as Bertie at No, sorry, as you were, Bertie at four thirty. That was my catch cry, and uh, we had the top one hundred. So we tried to better two U E and three U Z with their top forties. Uh, however, um, it was uh, quite a task on a Sunday afternoon to get through from number one hundred through to number one. I was ready to go home and have a beer at the end of that lot.
0: Now, given the Top 40 radio was very much in its infancy in Australia, who were the role models or those major influences for the 7HO jocks?
1: Well, I guess we could look towards 3UZ in Melbourne, 2UE in Sydney. We only chose the top ones. Uh, Although there were only two disc jockeys on the radio station when I uh, arrived there. One was the late Keith Graham. Uh, He was also the chief announcer. And the other one was me. I was the the freshman, but keeping in mind that uh, Top 40 was not a general format in those days. It was only an occasional musical show, uh, usually on the weekends, but during the week, we were still running serials when I got there, and we had, uh, 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 there was a removalist by the name of Cornish who sponsored Cornish Cowboys, and that was country and Western music, so we covered everything where all the Jack Davy shows and a Macquarie feature called Monitor, which had 20-minute segments uh, out of Sydney. And uh, this was amazing. I couldn't see it happening today, but in those days, it was quite appropriate. In
0: 1963, you walked through the doors of 45 Burke Street in Melbourne, possibly one of the most famous broadcasting addresses in Australia, to take up a position at the Greater 3UZ. So what stood out most to you about the people, or the place itself, when you first arrived?
1: Well, the Greater Three Years 45 Burke Street in Melbourne, was like, uh, I imagined, uh, Disneyland to be. Because there was Walt Disney himself, uh, alias Lewis Bennett. He looked a bit like uh, Walt, actually. Lewis was one of the most revered men in Australian radio. He was uh, so approachable, he was... Uh, An interesting man, he not only spoke fluent French, but could also play a great piano and was a qualified dentist. And he brought the Greater 3UZ, he gave it that name, he brought it to its uh, utmost popularity in Melbourne. It became number one and was number one for many, many years. Uh, The other man that uh, impressed me as soon as I walked through the door was uh, the late John McMahon. Now, John used to compare uh, radio auditions, which was uh, sponsored by Christie's. And uh, the origin of the program was uh, based on uh, another program they had called Are You an Artist? And one of the uh, executives uh, at one time suggested, well, look, we've got all these people coming in to audition for Are You an Artist? Let's run a tape across the auditions. And we'll make that a separate program because some of them were awful. You know, they just didn't pass the audition. But they've made for great entertainment. And it went into the uh, Guinness Book of Records at that time as being the longest running talent radio program in the world.
0: Okay, John, going to stretch your memory a little bit here. Can you take us back and give us a description of the studio that you worked out of in the mid-60s?
1: Well, there was a series of about three or four studios and a little booth off each of those for the turntable operator if you needed one. But we played most of our our own 45s from the, uh, the top 40. Uh, in fact, we were top 40 news, weather and sports, basically, in those days. And uh, we uh, had small studios which contained Spotmaster machines built into uh, the left-hand side from where you were working at the panel and then on each side of you were two uh, small turntables mainly uh, well they would accommodate an lp we didn't play many of them in those days but uh, 45s we played many and um we also had a massive panel in front of us which had a lid on it uh, so that you could when you removed the lid it revealed all these rows of buttons and keys and switches for the racing panel and that, of course, happened every weekend and uh, sometimes midweek. What about preparation for
0: the program? What did that
1: involve? Well, mainly you were preparing for racing to uh, encroach upon your music uh, log. Therefore, you couldn't prepare thoroughly because a race would come up, it would run late sometimes, and uh, that would uh, sort of interfere with your uh, schedule. However, um, The racing, of course, was wall-to-wall racing on a Saturday or a public holiday. But during the week, we'd have, uh, say, on a Thursday, we'd have the trots. Um, In other words, (laughs) harness racing. I should clean that up. Uh, (laughs) And then, um, say, on Tuesday, we'd have uh, greyhound racing on Tuesday night and uh, horse racing on Wednesdays and occasionally on Thursdays. But on Saturday, it was a free-for-all.
0: As you mentioned, as well as spinning in those discs during the week, you also found yourself queuing in the 5th of Doombin on a Saturday afternoon. How did that come about?
1: Uh, those two jobs uh, sort of uh, melded into each other on a weekday when you had the occasional race meeting. But on a Saturday, uh, as I said, it was uh, wall-to-wall racing with a, an occasional music fill-in. In latter years, that uh, became a no-no. There was no time for any fill-ins anyway. And uh, the person who was uh, mainly doing that was a chap of the name of Bob Cornish, the late Bob Cornish, who later on became general manager of 3UZ. And uh, Bob also always had an offsider to handle starters and riders and other peripheral information and also commercials. Uh, for instance, uh, Les Hyle, who has retired to the Sunshine Coast these days, is uh, he was uh, Bob's offsider there for many years. And when Les went into uh, uh, bigger things, I was uh, commandeered to be Bob's offsider. So again, I uh, started to do bits and pieces and learn on the job alongside Bob. Bob eventually became general manager of the station after being sporting director for many years. And uh, he decided that uh, he wouldn't have time to be doing Saturday and public holidays. So he gave the job to me. Uh, the only thing is I didn't have an offsider. Uh, because a lot of things were being introduced that uh, negated uh, the necessity of having starters and writers and all that information, which was not printed in the press, but uh, ultimately was. So we didn't have to cover quite as much uh, statistical information. However, uh, as time went on, the race meetings grew in number and uh, we had races uh, originally from, uh, say, Moonee Valley, um, Randwick in New South Wales, Uh, we'd have a country meeting in Victoria and we'd have a meeting in Brisbane and a meeting in Adelaide. That was it. Then Perth was introduced and uh, New South Wales provincial racing was introduced. And we ended up uh, starting with five race meetings and ending up with about 10. And before, just before my retirement, we were covering races every three minutes.
0: So six hours of race coordination on a Saturday afternoon. You must have been mentally zapped by 6 p.m.
1: You bet I was. And re- ready for a sip of uh, amber fluid, too, I might add. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a, a hectic time. By the same token, it was very satisfying. And uh, when you came out of that studio at six And it had gone smoothly You sort of patted yourself on your head or your back And say, uh, hey, that was good I, I feel good about that And it was uh, very satisfying to come off a busy shift And not make too many blues
0: you hear the top personality. no truer words were ever spoken or sung with 3UZ in the 60s boasting the biggest stars and the top personalities let's go through a few Firstly, drive time specialist, Alan Lappin The station
1: with the nicest listeners has got Lap Lap on 3UZ Lap Lap, that's what we said Alan Lappin will make your life worthwhile just two, nine, under well, Alan wasn't always on drive, but uh, did a bit of breakfast at one stage, too. Alan was an interesting character. Um, he was one of the few Australian disc jockeys who didn't um, fall into the habit of trying to sound like an American. Alan was decidedly Australian. Hello, pallys. And uh, hello, Lapricorns, as he called his listeners. And he was very, very laid back and Australian. And, uh, uh, you know, there go the pips. They're three years ahead pips, he'd say, when the time signal went through. And he was uh, a real character and a funny man and and a good jock, a good disc jockey. And I worked with people like Grant Goldman, uh, Don Lunn, Jimmy Hannon, Don Lane, Burt Newton, John Chester, Sean Cosgrove. I've left out a few I shouldn't have, but uh, there are so many.
0: Absolutely a cavalcade of stars there. Hey, listen, there were entertainers and informers during the day, but by night there were the influencers who had the year, it seemed, of the whole youth of the day in Sam Anglesey and the legendary Stan Roof.
1: And, of course, we uh, mustn't leave out Ken Sparks because Ken was uh, a nighttime specialist too. But uh, Sam Anglesey, he had a style all of his own. Stan Roof. Heidi, howdy, Victoria. Stan uh, came to us from 3KZ and he had been uh, a noted Melbourne disc jockey for many years on the radio and uh, encouraged a lot of uh, Australian performers Uh, when they recorded. uh, He would play and uh, mention their records on numerous occasions and uh, really did a a wonderful job in promoting Australian talent, especially that talent from uh, Victoria.
0: Now, John, before you arrived at the station, you said had set up an outside broadcast studio at the Emerging Shopping Complex at Chadston. Now, did you often broadcast from there? And I suppose, what was the purpose of the station being there?
1: Well, to answer your last question first, uh, the purpose of the studio was, uh, A, uh, for um, visual involvement with our audience who went to Chadston Shopping Centre. Uh, of course, the shopping centre was... Uh, minute compared to what it is today it's one of the biggest in the southern hemisphere but uh, in those days we had a garden plaza and plonk right in the middle was our octagonal uh, fishbowl studio and i worked there i suppose it would have been a couple of years after i joined the station but i was doing a double shift two till four and ten till midnight the ten till midnight was uh, mainly sponsored by uh, well i won't mention the name because it was a cigarette manufacturer but uh, between two and four, I had to travel out to Chadston find a car park somewhere and uh, do that two to four segment from the Chadston studio. And uh, before that time, when I was going there to uh, broadcast my first segment of the double shifts, on a Sunday afternoon, Don Lung used to play the entire top 40 from the Fishbowl studio and attracted a huge audience of, of people to see see uh, the station in action, and especially Don Juan.
0: Make way for the fabulous Mr.
1: D. Here comes the fabulous Mr. D. He's here to bring the best to you. Hit records, all brand new, so get with the fabulous Mr. D. Uh, The purpose of uh, the Chadstone studio was uh, twofold I think it was one was uh, being visible uh, to the public and two was to uh, look after the advertising of uh, clients within the centre itself. My, I recall, was a very big sponsor in those days.
0: Now, as well as Top 40 Radio, 3UZ also presented some of the more iconic, unique radio programs. We've mentioned already radio editions with John McMahon behind the microphone and, of course, Shirley Radford on the piano. However, for those of a certain age, Newsbeat was compelling listening on a Sunday morning. So, John, for the uninitiated, what was Newsbeat all about?
1: Well, it was mainly uh, fire truck and ambulance chasing and also uh, there was somebody on duty in the newsroom with the two-way radio to uh, whoever was uh, out and about in his, in uh, a three UZ car covering Newsby. and he would uh, say, "Look, there's a fire at such and such, or uh, the police have just reported that uh, there was an accident on the corner of such and such and such and such." And uh, our reporter, who more than often was uh, more often than not was uh, John Ford, but there were other uh, other compares. Uh, and John would uh, be directed to go to the scene of this accident or fire or whatever and interview people who were uh, no doubt witnessing the whole uh, whole event to get their reaction. And uh, uh, sometimes we got some very interesting uh, material that had to be uh, deleted before it got to air. But uh, it was a very popular program. It was uh, broadcast. John, at the end of his uh, night out, I suppose, in the wee small hours of the morning, probably even later than that, 4 or 5 a.m., would go back to the studio and there'd be somebody in there to help him to uh, cut the, the tape and splice it and and join it again and edit the whole thing so it sounded uh, and, and fit into a nice 30-minute uh, segment. And it was very popular. People just wanted to hear what, what was happening in the, in the city overnight. Tom Jones... And what Tom used to do, he'd get to the, uh, the location of uh, the incident and would hop out of the uh, 3UZ car and run around it three or four times and then turn his tape recorder on. <sighs> well, uh, I'm, I'm on the side of uh, uh, this uh, particular accident and it looks dreadful. Uh, <sighs> and he'd be out of breath. And it was a very clever little ploy, actually, I would have thought. Mystery surrounds an incident in Flemington, but we
0: eventually find out what it was all about. Wellington Road near Racecourse Road, and uh, an ambulance has just left the scene. There's a lot of blood here, a lot of blood on the road. And uh, a carton, a beer carton, partially empty, a couple of bottles on the pavement here. Did anybody see what happened? No, mate,
1: no. We, uh... No, we came out with... You know, a lot of swearing there. going on. You heard some swearing. Oh, he was swearing. Shocking. Hmm. Wasn't he, Jack? Yes. Was they say he put his hand through a window. Mm,
0: there's a lot of blood there on the uh, on the pavement.
1: Because when we came out, he, he was there, like, over there, oh, playing up, wasn't he? Shocking language.
0: This is Pilots of the Airwaves. No, it's not Newsbeat, but we do have the legendary John Vertigan with us today. And, John, after 15 years at UZ, you were lured up to Sin City, which never is an easy thing for Victorians. Um, just ask Eddie Maguire. 2UE was a racing station, and then on to 2WS in an administration role. Tell us about those two stations.
1: Well, to UE, it was uh, more or less like, uh, you know, coming out of UZ into UE was a a strange uh, experience because to UE was also very Hollywood as you went through the front door into reception. It was much like UZ in that regard. Uh, Sort of reminded me of Channel 9 in Melbourne back in its heyday uh, where you had this fantastic uh, atmosphere. It was very difficult to explain, but it was like Hollywood. Anyway, at 2UE, I was a sporting director and I was doing Saturday afternoons, public holidays, much the same thing as I was doing at UZ, except that I was working with a different crowd of people because A, they were on a different network. Uh, It was, in other words, uh, it was 3DB, 2UE, that sort of uh, uh, network of stations, racing stations. And I got to work with uh, a lovely bloke by the name of Des Hoisted. He was their main caller. After about 12 months at 2UE, a a good friend of mine, in fact, he was best man at my wedding, sadly was killed in a a spectacular road accident in New South Wales some years later, Keith Graham, who was uh, I worked with at 7HO in Hobart. Anyway, uh, Keith gave me a call and he, he was setting up a brand new station in the western area of Sydney known as 2WS, W for West and S for Sydney. And they were going to um, transmit uh, their programs to the uh, the people of the west of Sydney who were hitherto uh, not catered for, specifically. And the western area of Sydney is pretty large, I can tell you. Uh, but uh, Keith gave me a call and he said, look, uh, I'm missing a... Um, an operations manager. Would you like to sort of pull up the uh, the anchor at 2UE and come across? So I gave it some thought and then made the move after only a year at 2UE and joined Keith and uh, the gang at TWS, which was uh, quite an adventure. Uh, they started off in a little tiny cottage and then uh, built uh, this magnificent radio station right uh, adjacent to it on this block of land and, in Seven Hills in Sydney. And uh, we got to work in in, uh, a wonderful atmosphere and some of the most modern equipment you could find anywhere. And anyway, eventually, I uh, gave up the, uh, uh, the job of operations manager and became community affairs director and public relations for the station. And it's then that I started to travel to all these rotary clubs and Apex and Junior Chamber of Commerce as a guest speaker right across the west of Sydney. So I, I got to know that quite well. And I was uh, promoting the station and also uh, delivering some uh, anecdotes about my years in radio, even then.
0: You eventually made it back to 3UZ via 3DB and stayed there for a lazy 20 years again, coordinating racing until 2008. So what was the biggest change in that job between the time when you returned in 1988 And when you retired in 2008
1: well the biggest change when i got back in 88 and it was a leap year so it was february the 29th in 1988 that uh, uz resumed covering racing uh, because db was sold and uh, was going to take on a music format so the racing had to go so went back to its uh, its home at 3UZ, the greater 3UZ. And uh, then the changes I noticed over that time, first of all, the station changed its call sign to Sport 927 and ultimately became uh, RSN, Radio Sport National. Now, in this time, uh, we saw a lot of technical changes taking place and also the increase of the number of meetings being covered. So we needed all that new technical Uh, equipment and expertise, and uh, from pushing buttons and turning faders and whatnot, uh, we ended up with touchscreen technology and all this magnificent uh, panels of futuristic-looking spaceships, so to speak, and uh, I... uh, Starting off my career in 55 playing 78s and ending up with touchscreen computer technology, I had to go through the whole thing over those number of years, and it was great, and I adapted to it.
0: So, John, on reflection, what gave you the most satisfaction, spinning the fantastic black plastic for four hours during the week or coordinating a full day's racing program from all across Australia for six hours?
1: The latter, my friend. Uh, I mean, one disc jockey program playing top 40 news weather and sports would run into another in your memory. However, in the the racing coordination for six hours, where they're coming in from every which way, and uh, there's a protest in Sydney, Uh, the meeting in Wollongong has been abandoned because of heavy rain. Uh, In Perth, they're just starting over there at four o'clock in the afternoon, and we've got the first race coming up in 10 minutes so it became uh, a cavalcade of events and it was happening uh, every well ended up happening every three minutes that's when i got out
0: Okay, John, time now for a dozen or so stock standard jock questions that we ask, which were going to vary slightly in your case. First up, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died?
1: Uh, Where was he? Well, of course, that happened 40 years ago, just earlier this week. Um, I was at 2WS in Sydney, and I wasn't emotionally affected like a lot of the disc jockeys were. Uh, I don't know why. I wasn't emotionally affected when Elvis passed. But, uh, you know, I was shocked. But uh, quite a few tears were shed in the building that day.
0: Okay, John, how about the best concert you ever saw at Festival Hall?
1: I didn't get to Festival Hall all that often. I certainly didn't see any wrestling or boxing there. Uh, But uh, one show that did stand out, which I I know I thoroughly enjoyed, and my then wife, uh, Uh, was accompanying me, and that was uh, to see Glenn Campbell. Come on stage, you say, hi, I'm Glenn Campbell. (laughs) He was a great musician, a great guitarist and singer, and we miss him.
0: That word you had most trouble (laughs) pronouncing on air.
1: Oh, I'd have to think about that. I know I did have problems, like many radio announcers, in giving a weather forecast, that there would be uh, fogs and frosts, frogs and frosts. And uh, that's not just me. I think most people that have been on air have had that problem.
0: Now, John, was there ever an on-air incident in your career that had you thinking that you might get those Don't Come Monday orders?
1: Actually, there was, because in addition to being uh, a racing coordinator at 3UZ, this is the greater 3UZ at Burke Street back in the 60s and 70s. In the 70s, I was uh, also producing and panelling for Noel Ferrier and Mary Hardy, and uh, there was a recorded commercial uh, for uh, some sort of a wine or spirit or a brandy or something. And uh, she asked me to open the mic and she had her headphones on and she kept hiccuping, hiccuping through the whole commercial. Now, it was stupid of me to open the mic. I should have pretended to. But, no, I opened it and, uh, of course... Uh, Mr Bennett and Mr Cornish called me in the next day and he said, please explain. So uh, a very red-faced young man had to apologise and back down on that one. But I retained my job, fortunately. Musically,
0: where's the preference, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles?
1: Oh, the Beatles. I mean, you know, they were imaginative. They had composed and and, uh, performed so many different styles of music from your raw rock and roll to uh, things of fantasy. No, there is no no contest sir uh, no contest uh, the rolling stones will roar rock and roll and that was it
0: okay john here's the hard one bert bryant or bill collins
1: oh that's that's a hard one that's a real i worked with both of them i loved their work uh, bert bryant was a, a very funny man a very colorful man bill collins was a lovely guy who could uh, sing on sunny side up huh? and uh, do comedy sketches and um, also was very accurate in his uh, race calls. Now, I'm sorry, it's a dead heat, dead heat.
0: Now, for someone who was so involved with horse racing, did you ever have the occasional bet?
1: Very occasional, Paul. I uh, didn't bet while I was on the job, as I had noticed a few people, uh, racing coordinators, uh, who will remain unnamed would be, spend half the afternoon on the phone to their SP uh, placing bets or their phone account with the TAB. But uh, I didn't have a phone account. I didn't bet. I didn't follow the horses. And occasionally I'd have a bet if we had a night out, say at the local greyhound meeting uh, as a promotion. You'd turn up and get fed and uh, have a couple of bets and that was it. But no, not while I was on the job.
0: John, what was the biggest news story that broke while you were on air?
1: I was on air, it was the first weekend breakfast shift I had on 3UZ in 1963, the night or the uh, the morning here, but uh, President Kennedy was assassinated and all hell broke loose. Uh, Not only was I uh, having to ditch all the music and some of the commercials because we're crossing to the newsroom all the time, but also I had Lewis Bennett, the general manager, breathing down my neck, telling me what to say, what not to say, and how to say it. And I was that nervous, uh, keeping in mind, it's the first breakfast program I did on the station. So that I'll never forget. The other occasion was at a similar time on, uh, I think it might have been a Saturday. Yes, it would have been, because I was doing breakfast again, and it wasn't long after the uh, assassination of President Kennedy, but uh, the two uh, Australian Navy ships collided. HMAS uh, Melbourne and uh, and the Voyager collided just south of Sydney, and uh, that was uh, dreadful news. You know, it was a loss of life of so many young men. Unbelievable. Never forget it.
0: So, John, across the fifty three years, is there anyone that you met that you were suddenly starstruck at the sight of them?
1: Well, I met a few people that uh, I didn't quite know what to say to them, but. One person I, I did finally meet. met, it was in the reception area at 2UE in Sydney, was Graham Kennedy. And he, he very nicely said, I've heard of your work. I said, I've heard of yours too. <laughs> but I was quite starstruck meeting Graham Kennedy at long last because he started at three UZ back in the uh, early 50s.
0: Now, John, with this question, we normally ask you what the words of advice were that you got from a program manager. Let's turn it around. What words of advice did you give your son, John, as he entered into the world of radio?
1: I said to John, or Jonathan, or Joff, as he's called in the, within family circles, remember this, son, the best ad lib is a written ad lib. Now, that wasn't original, uh, Paul. Uh, I got that from John McMahon. So <laughs> in my early days of U Z. So I passed it on to my son. and he's, he's never forgotten that one.
0: Well, John, we know you're a keen fisherman. What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? Let's not exaggerate, eh?
1: Well, this almost goes back in, into the time uh, uh, in memorial. Uh, I think it was about 22, 23 years ago I was fishing on uh, Western Port and I caught my first and only gummy shark. It was huge. I've forgotten the actual measurement now, but it was very heavy and uh, filled our freezer and gave us fish meals for weeks to come. And we
0: know you fancy yourself as a bit of a cook. What is currently your signature dish in the kitchen?
1: Well, Paul, I uh, was lucky enough to be on a trip uh, to Vietnam and Cambodia last year. That sort of thing has been knocked on the head lately, unfortunately. But anyway, in uh, Vietnam... I sampled a dish, uh, which was a soup dish called P-H-O, it's spelt. It's not pronounced pho, it's pronounced pho. And uh, I now make that once a week at home. I make a point of making a beef pho at home. Uh, I won't give you the recipe. It's a little bit involved, but you can look it up on Google. And it's a a soup that I just adore. love it. Well, John, what
0: can I say, but thank you so much for your time today. Your career has been as exceptional as your memory recall. And for someone like me, this has just been a kid in a candy shop half hour.
1: Thanks again. Thank you for having me aboard, Paul. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: John Vertigan on Pilots of the Airwaves. And this is our final podcast for 2020. Thank you to all our 11 participants who have given so freely of their time over the past three months. Hey, listen, we welcome your comments and suggestions and the occasional like if you're so moved. We'll catch you again in 2021.